This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. That warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! All right, welcome, welcome, welcome to the uh, Ward Scott Files here on a Thursday. We're going to be linking up a little bit here with our guest, Andy Valadon of Dance Alive uh, National Ballet. And uh, we are um, um, getting the Zoom link to him now. We're getting ready to go in a second here. So I'm in the Melbourne Law Studio in the Manly Warthog Command Center, Man Cave. And uh, 352-325-3938, should you want to um, uh, text message me, there my man is. And um, uh, we'll be going with Andy Valadon here in just a moment uh, and get an update on what's going on with Dance Alive National Ballet. Um, we uh, are uh, scheduled to um, give you an exciting summary of what Dance Alive National Ballet has been doing and what they got coming up. You know, very soon here in the middle of the month is Valentine's Day. And uh, I don't know of anybody more appropriate to play Don Juan than the dashing, handsome uh, Andy Valadon, who um, has uh, been dancing ever since he was a youngin and is now transitioning into uh, directing and participating more objectively in the choreography of dances, but he's still going to be the role player in um, uh, this. Um, uh, he's signaling me. Can you hear me okay, Andy? Yes. Okay, good. He's um, thrashing his arms about as if he understands the accolades coming his way. So <laughs> he's, uh, he's, uh, he's going to be playing Don Juan and Loveland which is going to be an interesting romantic uh, dance. I encourage we're going to encourage all of you to go to here today, and uh, it's a, <laughs> it's going to be a real treat. It, I, I got to tell you, I've been watching Andy dance for a long time, and he is really, really versatile and talented, and uh, can just do about anything. I've seen him leap out of buildings. I've seen him uh, dance off of scaffolding and everything else. Dance on stilts. Uh, you name it, and he's done it. So uh, we have our half hour here with uh, Dance Alive National Ballet, and uh, Andy's going to bring us up to date on what's happened. Uh, just to give you a, kind of a summary as I'm looking at the website of Dance Alive, which is dancealive.org, uh, and he played The Phantom, uh, which is a great, uh, great uh, uh, drama, of course. Of course, then The Nutcracker came, and the children uh, love Nutcracker. And now we're coming up on Carmina Burana and Don Juan and uh, Loveland. And then ahead of that, we'll have our Dancing with the Stars. So, Andy, um, bring us up to date. I've kind of uh, give a synopsis, but you're much closer to what's going on every day in the dance studio. How are you, sir? Hey, how are you doing? Good. Good morning. Uh, yeah, Don Juan is uh, shaped up. Uh, we did a couple of um, touring uh, shows were very success, uh, successful. Uh, we had uh, three shows already. 
and uh, pretty pretty well rehearsed. Uh, we're changing a little thing, uh, little things in it because uh, getting closer to to the touring shows, uh, we got a couple of people that got hurt. Um, actually, um, Ashley, my fiance, uh, she broke her toe, and she really? was supposed to yeah. She was supposed to dance with me the one of the, the principal roles in the, the Don Juan. And uh, she wasn't able to, to dance on the first three shows, but she's back now. And uh, we have a couple of people back to uh, that, you know, some people got out of COVID. Another guy uh, twist his foot. There was a, a bunch of stuff going around. So we was pretty uh, messed up in the the first three shows but now uh, everybody's back and we still have a couple of weeks to to prepare and on the 12th at 2 and 7 30 we'll be there and it's a pretty pretty romantic show it's uh the show divided in in two parts uh don juan in the past and don juan uh in the present uh with uh music's that match those two ideas and uh, also choreography that match those two ideas. It's just a nice show. Is this in the Phillips Performing Arts Center? Is it the Phillips Center uh, at UF and- um, Is it one night only, Andy? One night long, two shows, but just the 12th, just one night. February 12th. Uh, yes, a, a pre-Valentine Day uh, kind of uh, show get the people in gear for the romanticism of the holiday. Well, let's talk about the plot of Don Juan in Loveland. Everybody may not be familiar, and I know you all do some adaptation of, of, of uh, where did this come from and how are you going to do it? You mentioned two parts to it. Yeah, uh, Don Juan is the, you know, the mythic uh, love um, conqueror. Uh, he was a uh, uh, player. He would conquer all the, the women and, um, you know, just walk away and up to the next one. Uh, on our version, though, he falls in love with this one woman. And there is this uh, figure of destiny, of uh, fate that's played by Jesse Dominguez, and she pushes and pulls and, and controls the narrative, uh, trying to get Don Juan to decide his own fate, as in, is he gonna fight for her? Is he gonna just give up? Uh, what's gonna happen? And uh, it's not a very, uh, obvious ending but i'm not gonna spoil that <laughs> uh let's just say that um it's not the obvious don juan with the con conquers and all that it's just this one woman that he tries to get and there's always something in his way and uh we'll see what happens at the end there so you have a kind of a, you have kind of a modification here of the typical don juan story and that he always gets a woman he wants and then gets away to the next one. But in this case, he meets his match, it sounds like. Is this a, a little bit, yeah. Is this a modification that Dance Alive has put in the show? Yes, uh, Kim had the idea for the, the whole um, 
story and she made the choreography accordingly so um it's uh, it's uh, it's her own vision of uh yeah well, I, I, I i can understand kim tuttle of course is um here we have met the, the, the romantic lover has met his romantic uh, challenge. And um, in keeping with them, um, let me get into a, a little bit, bit of a sand trap here. Um, the power of women <laughs> yeah. um, is, uh, is what really is here going on, it sounds like to me, which is interesting drama, heightens attention and gives it some real conflict. And uh, it's probably very true to life. I mean, it is. Uh, yeah. You know, the, the woman who tames the tames the man, it's um, is is probably not the first story we've heard of this. But so this is this is good, and and it uh, it gives the women a reason to listen to Don Juan other than the old reason. <laughs> and, and so yeah. uh, we're all for that. Um, what about this Carmina Barana? Or because that's coming up, as I see, I'm looking at your website here in March. Can you give us a preview of what that might be about? Well, Carmina Barana is this. Um you know, it feels um, holy because the music is reminiscent to, you know, those uh, Renaissance, the kind of medieval uh, monks and nuns and stuff like that on, on stage. But it's more of a, a profane take on, on uh, the visions of, you know, holiness of the time. And uh, our version is pretty uh, literal. Uh, it, it takes you through the, the, the music as in um, it puts there all the, the actual visions of what the music is saying. And, um, but it's, you know, Carl Orff, Carmina Burana, and uh, it's a great 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 uh composition uh we're gonna be dancing with the orchestra uf orchestra and choir it's a huge production uh it's i think our biggest of the year and it's can't miss that one that one is if you have to see anything from dance alive and just one thing that you're going to choose go to carmina burana is our biggest production production of the year for sure. Well, I, I have to agree with you on that, Andy. Uh, Carmina Barana with the orchestra and the choir with the dancers is a production that uh, uh, there's none other like it in this area. I suspect you'd have to go to New York or somewhere, Chicago, someplace, Houston. Oh, yeah. To see this type of production. You've got it right here. And it is a thrilling uh, uh, experience to be there with all three entities together to produce the drama. So that will be uh, March uh, twenty um, fifth and twenty sixth. There'll be two days yes. of that. Two and, days of uh, that, both at seven thirty, at also at the UF uh, Phillips Center. And it's not too early to buy tickets because if you go to dancealive.org, you have a uh, choice there. It says buy tickets, and um, of course, it's not too early to buy tickets for Don Juan and Loveland, which will be February twelfth to um, coincide with the Valentine Day. Uh, experience that is so traditional um, and that's going to be I want to talk a little bit too about how successful the the school shows have been and particularly something we've got going on here quite successfully in Alachua uh, uh, Andy is is the kids coming to the schools can you are you uh, able to talk about that a little bit uh, 
as in what sense? Like, uh, well, we've kids. had a tremendous turnout. We've had standing room only and things productions here in Alachua. And uh, we have got the arts really taking a very good um, 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 position here in our community. So we have expanded the, as you know, we've been working on this for a while. We've expanded um, Dance Alive National Ballet, just not only from uh, Gainesville, Florida, and the Phillips Performing Arts Center, but also the Legacy Center in, in uh, uh, Alachua, where our Dancing with the Stars contest will be. And uh, yeah, the, that, that's the, coming up very soon. That's going to be a special event, uh, which will be upon us. You know, we're going to have a very busy life here very soon. The Champagne Gala will be uh, March 12th. And um, so we've got a lot of things here um, uh, uh, to, for these dancers to be healthy for. Uh, we talked about this a moment ago. I got to confess, Andy, I've always taken you all for granted um, as being uh, invincible, uh, injury free. Uh, but you yourself are a testimony to uh, the, the wonders of will. I tell you, you have been, you tell me your knees are worn out, your back is worn out, this, that, but you still are, you're still dancing, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm approaching 50. So the body starts to complain about stuff. Uh, <laughs> tell me about it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, my knees were always a, a, a source of a, a little grief for me uh, throughout my life. I have no more cartilage on either knee uh i have uh <laughs> yeah and my back a few years ago three years ago i had a a, a spine um uh, fusion surgery i had to put four screws there really but, yep yeah wow. and uh the thing about that was uh i was feeling pain for a while and by the end of uh the year that was three years ago i couldn't uh, bear it. I, I would walk for a while and even walking outside on the street was was uh, a hassle. And then um, I got the surgery. Uh, I, I got some x-rays and we realized the, co the, the, the uh, colon bone was, was completely misaligned and all that. So they put it back in place, put some screws there to hold it on. And now I'm bionic man. <laughs> oh, that always raises the questions can you go through the airport metal detector <laughs> oh yeah we'll see <laughs> <laughs> talking with andy Valadonio is the principal dancer he's been uh um the really the mentor for so many of the other dancers and he's approaching that midlife world uh for you it will be midlife i'm thinking you're going to make it to 100 of course andy but uh he's <laughs> eternally young i'm telling you if you could see i want you to see him dance because uh, he is as spry as a as if he were a, still a teenager um there is one fellow whom i know it comes around once in a while from china who is your senior um, oh yeah then talk about that gentleman for a moment he is still dancing as i understand it, and he's almost 70 mr chu well he's probably 73 now 72 73 something like that and the last time he came to gainesville that might have been maybe five years ago, and he was still dancing. He just came and, and did a couple of shows with us. Uh, right now, he's uh, retired in, <laughs> in China, which means he retired a couple of times with us. He, he had his, uh, this is Mr. Chu's last show, and then he would show up and just <laughs> do it again. He's an amazing gentleman. Wow. Yeah. 
amazing. Yeah. And for, for those of you who want to know how Dance Alive uh, National Ballet is put together, it's really Dance Alive International Ballet. The dancers are from everywhere. And Mr. Chu was from China. Uh, Andy is from Brazil. Uh, we've had dancers from Russia, Moscow. Uh, what am I missing? Turkey. Am I getting everybody's country kind of in my mind? Uh, well, we have uh, Japan now. We have uh, Tenki Nomura from Japan. Japan. Yeah. yeah. It, it's truly a, a diverse culture. You want to talk about the meaning of diversity. This is really a diverse culture of dancers. They're from everywhere, speak different languages. Uh, I'm assuming they can communicate. They certainly can on the dance floor. And um, <laughs> Uh, but there are a lot of languages there uh, that uh, come together in one place, and it's all put together in, in this uh, synchronized world known as dance, and probably the highest form of dance, which is this uh, ballet world, which is uh, probably where art and athletics intersect. Um, uh, it, it requires all the physical training that Andy's been talking about, as well as the thing that is so challenging and so special, I think, about it is uh, the dancers have to tell the story without talking. And so facial expressions become really an asset for a dancer. Uh, I've seen some dancers, Andy, who can, the women, for example, can express sorrow or happiness or consternation or just with the way in which they hope, you know, the facial expressions and um, gestures on the floor. So that's another thing you you probably, if you haven't ever watch the ballet world is very unusual, very special to the arts. You got to get the story across without using any words. Uh, so you got to use the music and you got to use um, uh, uh, the expressions of the dancers. Uh, are you training any differently, Andy, now that you've um, gotten a little older? I certainly am. I'm, I'm uh, resting more in between my arduous workouts that I used to do <laughs> every single day. And when I was younger, even twice a day, you know, but now I sort of take a day off now and then. How does it work for you, sir? <laughs> well, uh, for me, it's kind of the opposite. Uh, I was always a slacker. I, Are you I always am a slacker? Always a slacker. I am lazy as can be. And um, what I used to do is uh, uh, I, was, I would slack on class. I would try not to, to take class and warm-ups and all that and just come for rehearsal. Not here at Dance Alive so much because it was already, uh, you know, after my, my, my 30s and 40s, I was already getting to a point that my body needed a little more constance. But and in, in my youth, I, I was terrible. And nowadays, I can't even stop. If I, if I stop for a while, three, four days, my body feels it. So I need this, this constant uh upkeep right now because uh the minute i stop it's just a, i feel like my all my joint joints are petrifying or something it's it's pretty pretty hard right now but as long as i keep the classes going and the rehearsals and all that i'm i'm in a, in a good shape still going with adam Baladon, who has been with dance alive now how many years andy Decade? 15 years. 15 years he's been with Dance Alive National Ballet. And before that, I think I just want to get a resume for the people here to let them understand how many different places in the world you've danced. Can you go through that from, the t from memory? Well, I started at 10 in Brazil and uh, I, I grew up there. And my first uh, 
professional experience was there. But then I moved to France for a couple of years, came back to Brazil, then moved to England for a couple of years and back to Brazil and now here. But um, throughout those all those years and with all the professional companies I danced with, I danced all over the world. I mean, um, Europe, uh, Asia, South America, all over. You, you, you think about it, I've probably been there. Well, you know, I think one of the most interesting stories you told me once upon a time is that you danced in the heart of the Amazon. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Can you that talk was, about that? Can you talk about that for a moment? Yeah, that was a, a great experience. It was actually a, a mining company, a little village they built because there was this big uh, mining project uh, near the river and uh, they had to relocate all their uh, personnel to, to this little village and they would eventually bring rock groups and, and music and dance and whatever they could to entertain the people there. And they had this little theater, but it wasn't prepared for dance. And uh, the flooring was not ideal at all. So when we got there, we asked them to get, some, get us something that would at least approach what we had, like a, a Marley floor or something like that. And what they came up with was conveyor belts to carry uh, uh, iron ore. And they put those conveyor belts, they were very thick, rubbery uh, material. They put them on the floor and we danced over that, which was still not ideal at all. It was very sticky and, and very weird, uh, kind of too soft. And it was the weirdest uh, uh, experience. And it was actually, uh, because it was a, a built village in the middle of the forest, uh, it was the village ended and the forest started right there. Wow. So at, at night, uh, wow. when, when dawn came and you're sitting, at the edge of the, 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 the little village there. And we, we sat outside in the porch and, and kept looking at the forest. Animals would come all the way to the edge and well, curious about the, you know, no kidding. The <laughs> human. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty amazing. It was a, a great experience. We in got to heart? swim, swim with, with those uh, sweet water dolphins they have there and, and well, river full of piranhas too, but. Oh man. Yeah, I <laughs> tell you, people that, there don't care. They just swim. <laughs> that, I tell you, that's one of the most interesting stories that in the heart of the Amazon and the yeah. last wilderness on Earth where mining was going on, these people wanted some culture who yeah. were working and living True. here. Yeah. And they brought in bands and dancers and 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 right at the edge of the forest, the animals would come out to look at the humans. <laughs> <laughs> Oh my God! What a story! It's one of yeah. the most fascinating things you've told me. Um, and how? How? That's the heart. That's deep in Brazil, is it not? How did? How did you get there? Well, in this case, because they had all this uh, already, um, everything set up, kind of. There was uh, plane rides all the way to Belém, which is the, the kind of uh, the middle of the north region there and from there we got a boat uh, up oh, the river really? yeah 
and came and, down to Amazon on a boat uh, to the yeah. village. Yep, that was it. That's that's interesting. And what kind of how long a boat ride was that? A few hours, like maybe four hours. Really? And of yeah. course, the animals, I'm no doubt, had gathered at the edge of the water to watch you come. <laughs> oh, my golly. So we're talking to Andy Valadon, who's danced everywhere in the world. And the places he's told me about are more acceptable in culture. Uh, some of the best dance halls, if you will. I don't know if hall is the right word, but the venue, you know, all over the world. But this one takes uh, the proverbial cake that he danced in the heart of the Amazon uh, forest and uh, a pioneering village that, uh, you know, kept itself from going mad, I suppose, by having <laughs> culture come and visit it, which had yeah. to take a four-hour boat ride down the Amazon from the closest aeroporto. Oh, my <laughs> God. Definitely. <laughs> oh, my golly. Well, uh, after today, and we got about four or five more minutes to talk with you, what's your day like today? You're going to go out and and uh, stretch. I'm, you know, I'm trying to stretch, Andy. I, I am. I can't touch my toe. I can't say this on the air, but I'm trying to. <laughs> 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 anyway, uh, yes, Ray, Andy is also the phantom. Now he's Don Juan. So uh, what do you do from the rest of the day on taking care of your body? Well, right now uh, we are preparing for class at uh, 9.30. As soon as I hang up with you guys here, I'm going to go into class today is my day to teach so um as well as teach i kind of try to uh do as much as i can uh i i partake in the class with them and after class we go right into rehearsals today we have don juan and we're already starting on carmina burana too so we're uh rehearsing both ballets and that's that's pretty much the day plus at around, I think it's two or three o'clock in the afternoon, I have a rehearsal for Dancing with the Stars. We're really? already preparing. Yeah, we're already preparing that too. So that's going to be, that's going to be my day, all rehearsal, all day long. Well, the reason I bring this up to the audience is the demands on the body and the use of the body throughout the day with the flexibility and the strength and the, and the, and the uh, practice and the, and the uh, choreography your day, you dancers start, you, I, let me get this straight now, at 9.30, and you, you really don't stop, if, if, I don't even know if it's the right word, um, back off, let's say, until what, 4 o'clock or so? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And a little bit of break for lunch, I hope, but you don't eat much. Yeah. I Actually, there's not much of a break. I mean, uh, we rehearse with the the actual ballets uh, up to three o'clock in the afternoon. And from three, three to four, uh, I have the Dancing with the Stars with Anna, uh, Anna Olchese, she's uh, the one that I'm dancing with this year. And uh, at four, I'm done with my day for today. Uh, although there is a Carmina Burana rehearsal at nine at 7.30 and that's the only break I would have there. Well, we've been talking to Andy Valadon, who is uh, um, watched and respected and admired for a long time here now that I first got involved with Dance Alive National Ballet by being asked to be in the Dancing with the Stars. And, uh, you know, I got kind of hooked on that. I thought uh, these people are really special. They're athletic, they're artistic, and, uh, and they're interesting and different because they come from all over the world. And 
have these various cultures that they bring together. And I have to give applause to Kim Tuttle, who's able to keep them all on the same page, keep them disciplined, keep them, so to speak, from wandering off the, out of the pasture and going down the road as my cattle do. They'll, if you don't watch them, they'll go next door and investigate what's going on there. But uh, she keeps all these people focused and keeps them uh, working, keeps them interested. So um, this is a well-kept secret for some in the uh, uh, area here. So I really want you to um, come to understand that Dance Alive National Ballet is a uh, really as professional organization, as quality and excellence as anywhere you'll find in the world. And these people indeed have danced all over the world. So we'll be featuring coming up, um, Don, uh, 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 we'll have Don Juan. That will be at the Phillips Performing Arts Center. Uh, it will be just uh, two times, I think, uh, 2 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. on yeah. February 12th. Then they'll have Carmina Burana, which will be the 25th and 26th at 7.30 each night. And then we'll be into our uh, Champagne Gala, which is a huge affair, will be held here in the city of Wallachua. You don't want to miss that. Andy, thanks so much for joining us and um, bringing us up to date. I think uh, your stories, as I've always said, about uh, the Amazon are just fascinating. <laughs> and, uh, and, and plus the fact that you've, uh, you continue to work hard and you continue to dance. So um, my hat's off to you, sir. And um, thanks for thanks for chopping by. Get out there and teach them how to be like you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you very much. Okay. We're going to take a break right now on the Word Scott Files to uh, thank our sponsors and our donors and be right back in a little bit. So uh, stay tuned. Um, thank you, Andy. This is Ward Scott. And I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, Large enough to serve you, small enough to care. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are On the Spot Dry Cleaners, Okita America Martial Arts, R&R Construction, Gators Dockside, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com, and click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. To call you stupid would be an insult to stupid people! If your brains were lard, you couldn't grease a small frying pan. Ken Cornell, known as the thin-skinned water boy. Ken Cornell, known as Minnie Mike. Ken Cornell, wears elevator shoes. Ken Cornell, he just wants to be like Check this out, Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pat him. 
Hi, Hi boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me. Help. Help. All right, welcome back to the Ward Scott Files here in the Mellon Law Studio and the Manly Warthog Command Center here in the Piney Woods of North Central Florida on kind of a, a dreary day if you like the sun. We don't have much of it, and we are scheduled to have a really nippy weekend. So for us, that will be uh, a most ex uh, interesting experience. And the wind chill is supposed to be uh, sort of a, a situation to have to deal with. I um, don't think there'll be much swimming except some hardy people. I checked the temperature of the water in my lap lane, and it was 62, uh, probably with a wetsuit. I know Lloyd Bailey is a manly man. He would not hesitate to go into 62-degree water, probably just shirtless. I, I, I just I can see it right now. A um, couple of things I've been researching I meant to talk about yesterday with you um, because it just never goes away. And as I said before, I, um, I'm trying to get to the bottom of what the truth is. And what I'm finding out is the truth is relative. Uh, it's not an absolute and depends upon uh, a lot of um, um, things that are factors that influence um, COVID attitudes are um, really all over the place. And uh, so I've been looking at um, research and uh, the latest I've gotten is from David Lenenhart. Uh, of all places, it appears in the New York Times, pretty darn good. But it's uh, from a survey that was done by Morning Consult. Uh, and I thought I'd share those with you just for your own edification and uh, education and all of the above uh, and put it in your hopper. Um, uh, most people have uh, very fixed attitudes about it, and but yet nobody seems to really know what it is and it's a moving target and all the above and everything else. So um, this is what the last thing I was going to press uh, pass along to you yesterday is that <clears throat> this seems to be consistent. So by the way, um, bear in mind that everything is subject to uh, um, you know, another person's opinion of it, of course, it's all over the place. But uh, apparently more than three quarters of all the U.S. COVID deaths, according to this morning consult, have occurred among people uh, 65 and older. And uh, these people are, uh, by some measures, um, um, you know, the ones that are already, uh, as they say, have other risks. Uh, generally, the young people um, really haven't suffered the way the older people have. So, uh, that seems to be a pattern that the older Americans should be more fearful of COVID than the younger Americans, but that's not necessarily the case. And so this uh, investigation went looking for why the younger ones also were kind of fearful of it. And it has to do with the uh, government taking them out of school and ordering that they shall wear masks and everything. And this has resulted in a lot of um, difficult times for young people in their early formative years going through education which are the most important years of all, where your uh, study habits and intellectual capacities are formed. And these uh, COVID kids, if you want to call them that, have missed all that because of the way in which uh, the uh, COVID has been uh, presented to them as a, as a threat. <clears throat> so one of the things that surprised the people who took the survey was that uh, and by, young, by, by, by a lot of measures, young people are actually more worried about the COVID than the older people are. Uh, and this is um, uh, um, really a, a, um, an attitude that probably from what this poll has found, this will satisfy a lot of people who are suspected this all along. A most plausible explanation for this is the political ideology that has been presenting the COVID 
uh, experience to the public. Um, they found by this poll that no other factors influence COVID attitudes as strongly as political ideology does. So um, the question then becomes who's right? And um, the answer to that is there's no one answer. If you try to figure out who's right about COVID, uh, there's no right answer. And, and the reason there's no right answer is it has to do with risk. And uh, it has uh, uh, risk, it has, different people have different attitudes toward risk. You know, there is no way, for example, uh, that I'm going cave diving. Uh, that's just not going to happen um, because my perception of the risk, no matter how well I'm trained, is that that's not, I'm, that not, that's not something I want to do. I'm not inclined to jump out of a perfectly good airplane. I have, though, had five motorcycles, and I've ridden those at breakneck speed in my lifetime. And a lot of people said I was crazy, but I didn't see a risk. You know, not really. I thought I could manage the control of the machine. Uh, I was not going to be doing something dumb and, and uh, you know, going through intersections and running red lights. Uh, and I kept the machines I had in very good shape. And I enjoyed the speed. And really, the reason I quit riding them was because all of a sudden, the government mandated that we should wear helmets. Well, that took everything and all the fun out of it. I used to love to have, when I had hair, have the wind blowing in, uh, through the hair and that riding with some sunglasses or something and riding 80, 90 miles an hour. Um, then that, I didn't see any risk in that. But other people uh, called them murder cycles and were in a now, nowadays I wouldn't get on one because I, I see more risk. And the reason I see more risk is I see more cars on the road um, that are just irresponsible drivers. And uh, it's, it's not something that I think has uh, anything I can control. It's something that is happening in the culture. So I'm no longer interested in the risk that would be associated for me and my perception of the risk of riding a motorcycle in the, on today's highway. So who's right about COVID depends upon uh, uh, the different people who have different attitudes toward risk. Um, as I said, some people would not ride a motorcycle. Some people would not go down a, a mountain as I love to do on skis as fast as I can go. They see that as very risky. Yes, you can fall. Yes, people break legs and all this stuff. But you don't think about that. You can't think about that when you're on those skis. You, you, in fact, speed is your friend and you want to go as fast as you can go because ironically, that makes it more maneuverable. And, um, but um, nevertheless, uh, this research, has, uh, uh, this outfit has done, has suggested Americans have adopted irrational beliefs about COVID. Um, they really can't, uh, as I've said before, nobody can prove what he believes, so he's free to believe what he wants to. So there's all sorts of beliefs about COVID. As I said a while back, I've been uh, counseled by somebody who has my well-being firmly at heart, who's told me that since I've been jabbed, uh, my immune system will collapse in two years from the time of the jab, uh, which would be next January, I guess. And then everything that would be have been fended off by uh, my immune system will collapse and I'll get everything from uh, you name it. And it'll, it'll attack me. Um, and, and another person who actually watches this show says, no, 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 not two years, three years. So, I, you know, you, you have to ask yourself, what do you, you know, what do you believe? I mean, um, and what it shakes down to, according to poll, is that millions of Republican voters um, have decided that uh, COVID uh, is not a risk. And that has become a, 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 an a, a marker of their conservatism. Um, they, they, the conservatives, many more um, 
Uh, now, the, the poll, the research shows, and I thought this is interesting. I've never seen this before, and I don't know if it's true. But since the Republicans downplay the risk of COVID, uh, many more Republicans have been killed by COVID than Democrats. I'm going to throw that out there for you all to check on. Uh, this is the result that they found from the poll. Let me name the poll, the morning consult. Um, and, and, and I thought that was pretty darn interesting. If the Republicans, as a, as, a, as, a, as a factor that identifies them as conservatives, have this attitude towards the risk of COVID, that they don't want the vaccine, uh, this, that, wing, and another, they don't take it, uh, then it, the, the COVID has killed more Republicans than Democrats. I haven't heard that. But that's one of the things that, uh, conversely, the Democrats have organized their security around uh, all the things that uh, they feel are associated with the COVID, and that is mental health problems, uh, uh, emotional distress, and you know, the, uh, being being uh, working from home hasn't bothered them. Uh, restaurants being closed hasn't bothered them, um, and uh, they, uh, uh, they they're all in on the vaccine. Uh, just as they have been all in uh, on uh, other mental health issues that um, they feel is associated with, um, you know, as being a healthy Democrat. So it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty interesting that one item that I found, and I want you all, I, I invite you all to check that out, whether more Republicans have died. I, I've never heard that before, but I do know that the COVID is politicized. I do agree with that. And I think you would too. Um, um, the, um, uh, the only test that seems to be valid, um, that you can actually point your finger at is, um, um, the, uh, the, the regret of unac unvaccinated people who get desperately sick from COVID. Now I have seen that quite a bit and I'm sure you have too. They'll, they'll have a person in the hospital on a trach, on a respirator, all this other stuff who is maybe going to die and very near death or maybe just emerging from the challenge and has had, you know, everything frightened to death out of them, uh, say that, you know, I'll regret not having gotten the, the, the vaccine. So that is, that is one test uh, that seems to be the only test that the desperately sick from COVID or those who have watched their relatives die from it who were not vaccinated, almost to a person, they come out and say, man, get yourself vaccinated but they have to be taken right to the edge of death's door in order to say that. And so the other thing that seemed to be pretty clear that both Democrats and Republicans are in agreement on is the um, disruption of, the, of COVID uh, 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 is harming children. Um, children of this particular, particularly the young ones uh, starting out and, you know, you know, that those very important years, uh, like one to, um, maybe fourth or first grade, maybe kindergarten up to maybe third, fourth grade, when, you know, you learn the difference between a circle and a square and you learn all these different things. Um, they have fallen behind. This is demonstrably evident uh, academically. Remote learning hasn't done it because they don't have this interaction with other kids. They don't have any social skills uh, that they would have gotten had they been in a classroom with other kids. They'd gone out to play together, uh, all that sort of thing. They haven't done that. And so they've missed the socialization. So they've not only because of the COVID and the way in which uh, they've been asked to step away from school and, and uh, be cautious and not be around others and this, that, one another, 
has negatively impacted their academic growth and their social socialization uh, because they don't have these interactions. So um, what is emerging out of all this that is demonstrable, it seems to be something they can actually graph and, and see is an increase in uh, uh, this, these young kids' mental health. Uh, uh, and the worst effect it's had on getting, you know, advantages, you know, education gives the minorities an advantage. So the worst effect has been on the minority kids, the black and Latino children in the high poverty schools. They are really behind. They'll probably never catch up. Now, what sociologists can project from this, I don't know if this is going to wind up in further disruption, if there ever was one of the family for these people. Uh, the Latinos probably have a family. The blacks tend not to have. I mean, and that's basically because the Latinos tend to be uh, Catholic and emphasize family. And the government has, as we know, uh, surreptitiously got in there and substituted itself for the family with entitlements. So the black minority has been harmed by the entitlements rather than helped by the entitlements. And this will probably be uh, really clear uh, on down the line when these kids have never been to school, which was very important for them to even start getting to school and learning, in some cases, their own names and how to write their names and recognize their names. And there's been this, 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 this I don't know exactly what it's all about, but you'll notice it in the mugshots uh, among the blacks. There's been this desire to name their children strange names. I mean, strange from you know the traditional names. And that becomes a problem if they don't go to school and they're not able to, to you know, present that name and you know, give rationale uh, for all that. That, that. that exacerbates the situation. So uh, to both Democrats and Republicans, one of the few areas of agreement here, 72% uh, of the Democrats are, are concerned that the ch their children are falling behind academically. And 61% of the Republicans are concerned that their children are falling behind academically. And 69% of the Democrats and 64% of the Republicans are concerned about their children's socialization. So uh, uh, the, the remote school substitute for the actual education has failed. And the closed schools, now the conclusion is, have done more damage to children uh, uh, than, than the COVID has. Uh, and that, 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 that's pretty interesting, I would say. The, the cautionary, uh, and this is mostly political. The, 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 the concern with mass and all that have been basically uh, creations of anxiety by the Democrats. So uh, the, and it, here's the poll that shows that. They ask, are you concerned about your children getting sick from COVID-19 while in-person school? And the Democrats are 83% concerned about sending their children to a school where their children will be around other children. I think that confirms the idea that the, the remote learning has been fostered by uh, the anxiety over COVID that is politically identified with the Democrats. Uh, Republicans, on the other hand, uh, only 49% of them, less than half, are concerned that their children are going to get sick from going to school. Um, so it's um, uh, the Democrats were perfectly uh, content or uh, okay with transitioning the students from, therefore, the in-person school to the online learning. So 65% of the Democrats said, okay, we can substitute uh, them not going to school by, you know, having uh, online learning. And only 29% of the Republicans were in favor of online learning. 
So um, um, the Democrats like to think, this is one of the comments by the pollsters, uh, that of their political party as the one that respects science and evidence, but this doesn't seem to be the case. Uh, but um, both parties are, and I you know, I have to throw the independents in here somewhere. Uh, both uh, parties though, however, are, are really, really struggle to read the evidence objectively. There's been very little conversation um, that has been, and I've looked for it. I've, I've really looked high and low for it. That is what you would call objective conversation about COVID. It has mostly been um, tainted by political ideology. But that poll uh, really ends up, if you really read it closely, it ends up focusing on the effect on children. Uh, the political ideology war that's going on uh, between the Democrats and the Republicans over the threat of COVID um, um, really is more isolated to the old uh, among those two parties than it is. The, uh, but but, but the, with, with the young, it really has come, back, it has come home to really affect. And we don't know the long range effects of this. As I said a moment ago, uh, these things will compound themselves. And, um, you know, those, those are already formative years. You talk to those preschool teachers, those elementary school teachers, uh, that's where it all happens. That's where you that's where you begin to be, get on the track and get through school and, and start learning who you are and what you what you need to work on. Um, this is a, this is a really kind of a, a, a pass that along to you in class today, students, because uh, it's something you just uh, need to uh, take a look at and think about. I'm not uh, I'm not ready to uh, settle up. You know, evidently, from what I can tell, the best of all things is to have been vaccinated and also to have COVID. Apparently, all those things pile up and give you a pretty strong immunity. So I don't know. I, you know, there it is. Um, then factor in the idea that out on the perimeter of all this, there's some people saying, oh, there's yet another variety coming. And, you know, this, that, we and another. So I just I keep I keep researching and I keep passing it along to you. And uh, uh, we keep our fingers crossed that uh, people I do know a couple of people who have died of COVID now. Uh, and talking this over you know, the, uh, a couple of days ago with somebody who is a Republican who uh, refuses to get the vaccine, who believes the vaccine, that the RMNRA is dangerous and will, will destroy your immune system, all that. Uh, in, in talking over that person, that person was convinced that the hospitals uh, bill and advertise that people die of COVID to get money. Uh, uh, when actually these people didn't die of COVID. Um, I can understand that if that's the case, because after all, if the government's going to pay uh, hospitals uh, for people who uh, they had, to, the hospitals had to take care of who had COVID, um, that's a source of money for the hospitals. And I can tell you right now, uh, hospitals and the medical world is in trouble. Uh, I have a lot of friends who are medical doctors, and I spent a lot of time talking to them. And the medical profession is in trouble. It's in trouble because uh, the doctors are, are, are being asked to do more with less for more people. And the hospitals are being asked to do the same thing. And uh, you have fewer and fewer actual personal physicians and you have more and more professional people who don't know you as a person, uh, but who are there on really a, a professional rotation basis. They don't have an office. They, they uh, are known as hospitalists and they work in the hospitals and they have a nine to five job. They are doctors, but they don't know you. Uh, they get the data about you when they uh, enter your room from the computer that was entered from the previous hospitalist that was there. 
that when they leave, this current one leaves the room, that doctor will enter information into the computer that the hospitalist who follows him or her will then get. It's not that nobody knows you. And you don't um, believe me. I've been there. I know this. You will not see the same doctor twice. Um, there's no advocate for you. Uh, there's nobody looking out for your personal. That's over. That's done. That's, that's, that, you, can, you can kiss that goodbye. It's all now about trying to survive and keep as much medical uh, 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 help going out there to as many people. And, and, and it's just too many people and, and there are too few doctors. And uh, we've tried to shore up this with, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the people who are nurse practitioners and physician's assistants, and all, but they're not doctors. And um, we're, we're making up for that uh, uh, loss of our home developed doctors by bringing doctors in from India and Pakistan. They're good doctors, but they're not coming from our culture and they don't build practices of our people all, always. So uh, I can understand, you know, I mean, I mean, I can understand billing uh, for a COVID patient because if the government's going to actually pay that and uh, then that would be, that would be advantageous to the hospital because uh, uh, I was at, you know, where I was the other day when I was absent, I was in, uh, uh, listening to the magistrate because I had to straighten out a, uh, an inheritance matter in, in, in the family. And I listened to people talk who really didn't have the skills to be before the magistrate and were trying to understand uh, how they could get the money. It was in the banking account, which they needed to pay the bills. And I can remember on more than one occasion that the unsuspecting person, always a minority, uh, who was coming there to ask the magistrate to release the money in the checking account so they could pay the bills, discovered all of a sudden that there was a lien on that checking account from a hospital because a, a family member had died in the hospital, hadn't paid the bill, and the hospital has learned that that pe person's now died and there's a probate, and that hospital wants to get in line uh, for, it's just like deeds. You know, you want to have a, you, you have a check on the, on the property and uh, have, a, you know, make sure there's no liens on the property when you buy the property. Because when you, if you don't, when you buy the property, you buy the liens as well. And, and so it's, it's the same way in, in medicine. Um, so it's a very complicated situation. And um, it, it's led to a lot of uh, protect, uh, you know, chaos and in, in some fundamental assumptions that we have about how our, our culture is organized. Now, uh, there, there are some observations about the lack of organization in our culture right now. And uh, um, uh, Daniel Henninger has earmarked what he calls the cumulative corrosion of standards, um, where we're, we're failing to hold anybody accountable for anything. And consequently, we have, we're drifting into senseless violence and mindless behavior. Um, and as near as Henninger can tell, uh, two major events caused this to, to, to heighten. And one was the George Floyd killing. And as a result of that, we have had random homicidal shootings, violent crimes, um, man in Harlem uh, unloading his Glock pistol at three cops, uh, you, know, you know, people walking into Burger Kings and shooting people. Uh, this is all kind of ramped up since the George Floyd killing and the emphasis on, um, um, you know, the, the defunding the police and the police have sort of backed down and the criminal of course, the judges have let them out because uh, they feel like, uh, well, you know, the only reason they're a criminal is because of the, the laws are wrong and loaded up against the uh, minorities. And so 
uh, uh, you know, they tend to let these people out adjudications. We've got all these sorts of records we've passed along to you to let you know this. Uh, the, so it's called extreme behavior that is breaking down our culture. And um, uh, we, we see that um, some of this is, uh, you know, loot. What the hell loot? They call it lootings, pitch battles with cops, uh, you know, um, really anarchy. And, um, you know, and, and then throw in the other end of this, the January 6th Capitol attack, where they try to call that an insurrection. But leading up to that, there's been sheer anarchy almost in the streets of America. Uh, Henninger seems to think starting with really ramping up, starting with the Floyd murder, uh, which the jury called a murder. Um, so we have um, he says now we don't really have career criminals. This is something I've noticed. Um, I've talked to guys who who, you know, were career criminals and ask them, um, uh, you know, what are you doing about the young guys who are going crazy? Can't you, you know, teach them a little bit behavior because they're carrying guns and career criminals necessarily not didn't necessarily do that. And they said we can't talk to them that we they're 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 so much more violent than we were. And these are guys that are older now uh, who have you know come to their senses. And Energer talks about that. These career criminals they they knew the they knew the difference between a burglary and an armed robbery. And um, they you know they but the the the, the one we have now. Uh, the, the ones we have don't have don't have any concern for that. They, they you know there's no there's no thing nothing in their head where they weigh what they're doing against what could happen uh, uh, as a result of what they do. So you've got looters, you've got shooters, you've got people knocking down ladies. Um, uh, you know it, it's it, it is uh, frightening people in these big cities, and uh, uh, so you know it's it's uh, all part of the. He doesn't call it a pandemic. It's an epidemic of 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 of, of, of looting, I, I, you know, behavior that's in the society that's affecting people's comfort level right now. Uh, this urban crime spike, you know, has road rage. But ultimately, what it is is the collapse of order, and people are watching this. And what they're concerned about is nobody seems to be addressing this collapse of order. Um, it's been exacerbated, of course, by the COVID, uh, if you will. The poll shows that, you know, we're creating even more disorder potentially by um, not sending these kids to school because of COVID in their formative years. What are they going to turn out to be when they're teenage adolescents and have had no instruction, no guidance, um, can't spell their own name, uh, you know, and are out on the society? So, the problem is, is the conclusion by Henninger reaches is that the blame lies with our society that has validated this behavior because we no longer hold anybody accountable. So it's a cumulative erosion, uh, corrosion of standards. Um, if you don't hold people accountable, if you don't have clear roles that are uh, uh, have integrity, uh, then you're going to have a problem in your culture. So I wanted to pass that along to you this half hour. Keep you up to date, students. Hopefully, you get something out of the course. Uh, we'll be back to more on the Ward Scott Files. Thanks to Dance Alive National Ballet. Be sure to attend those events. They are really great events. Um, Warthog Command Center out.